Today's podcast is brought to you by our podcast partner, Coast to Bay Housing Group. Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. On this episode of Seen and Heard, my special guest is Andrew Elvin, CEO of Coast to Bay Housing Group. I've had the pleasure of working with Andrew, the board and his executive colleagues in recent times and I was very impressed by their passion and commitment to the challenge of ensuring safe, secure and affordable housing for some of the most vulnerable members in one of the fastest growing areas in the country. Our topic today is Australia's housing, our next crisis. Andrew has extensive experience working in a variety of sectors over the past 25 years, including government, human services, health, community housing, aged care and disability sectors. He has been the CEO of Coast to Bay Housing Group for over six years. He's also the Regional Director of Community Housing Industry Association, which is the peak body for community housing in Australia and provides one in five of all Australia's social housing properties. Andrew has a substantial experience implementing groundbreaking community-driven programs. All right, now let's introduce Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, life in Queensland, where we are, continues relatively normally, except for our border lockdowns, both nationally and internationally. And so how have you and your organisation coped over this last 18 months? Well, like most organisations, it's been a really good test of your um, business continuity <laughs> planning. Um, Absolutely, and I'm yeah. delighted to say that it's, it's uh, stood up to the, to the test. So we've had, like most businesses, um, those occasions where people have been working from, essentially working from home. Yes. Um, I'm working online. Um, so it's been terrific that um, our systems and our processes are all set up um, to do that. But beyond the sort of, day-to-day practical I, I think COVID has sort of um, enabled our organisation to um, accelerate some change processes that were all already underway. Our first example is our relationship with our customers and our tenants. Um, we kind of transformed how that service delivery was going to work with yep. much more interactive phone yep. calls, yep. more online um, discussions and interactions, much more than an office-based system. So that was that was very good. We accelerated our um, capital program so that we kept our small businesses that we support on the Sunshine Coast um, buoyant through those um, early days in the pandemic long lockdown. And then the other thing I think that we've really sort of captured the spirit of is much more flexible ways of working. So we've mm. allowed our staff to choose the hours that they want to work and a combination of being in office and at home, which came naturally by sort of protecting everybody from COVID. But we've extended that um, even further and, and people have reduced their hours, become more efficient at what they've done that built a work pattern around their other responsibilities so I think work-life balance and efficiencies and effectiveness of what we've done has really sort of um, accelerated away we we also downsized our office space because we had that opportunity like many businesses as well so um, I actually think there's been some great benefits uh, from the kind of um, 
way that we've operated um, that's that we've wanted to do for a long time that sort of the pandemic has pushed us towards. So overall, we've had a successful pandemic, if there is such a thing. Um, <laughs> from a business perspective. From a yeah. business perspective, I think it has been transformational for us. So that's been brilliant, great. Brilliant. And look, I just want to pick up on the amazing initiative that you've led with your, your senior colleagues about the work-life balance. And as you said, you, you took the opportunity of what COVID required you to do in terms of changing some work patterns. And rather than just reverting back to the way we used to work, you've decided to say, okay, how could we learn from that in terms of the way forward? So just take us through so we've how introduced, that So we've introduced concentrated hours. So we said to most of our staff, do you, if, you, if you choose a pattern of work that reflects what you, you need for your family, and, and bearing in mind that some of those early days was some, some of our staff were homeschooling and all of those yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. things, you know. Um, if you reduce your hours and work more concentrated hours, can you actually move to a pattern of work? Um, where you're more efficient for yourself and for the organisation and it fits with your work-life balance. Not, not, not everybody chose it. It was a voluntary thing. Sure, sure. But the vast majority of staff did. I would say 95% of the staff have, have opted wow. for that. So that most people in a pay period now are working nine days, getting a long weekend and choosing their hours. And, and we've really been able to do that because we've changed the way that we've um, delivered our, um, our services and we've we've gained that efficiency, so it's it's been a win-win all around. And that's that's a, a window to the future, in, in my view, that you've really piloted through the pandemic, and now you can start to see that actually continuing on as as a normal way of operating, which is fantastic. So but congratulations. I th- I think we wouldn't be able to do that if we weren't able to sort of crystallise in each role what the out- what the outcomes are. Um, that we're requiring from each of the roles, so it's it's much easier to see that you're that you're you're still getting the service, the yep. same quality of service, but um, you've you've got those um, efficiencies as well. Well done. Now that's the health crisis and the impact that it caused, not just in your organisation but right across the country. But I want to now bring us to the the topic of the day, which is really a, another crisis that uh, our country is facing as many countries in the world and I call it the housing crisis. Can you give our listeners an idea of firstly the size and complexity of this challenge that we have in Australia and, and then let's sort of bring that down to your region on the Sunshine Coast. So look there's a, there's a theme here because what COVID has done I think across Australia is that it's exposed, accelerated and reinforced trends that were already there. This is what's happened in many of the conurbations, but certainly on the Sunshine Coast around housing. So what has happened is the cost of housing for purchasing or the cost of housing for renting, and that's 95% of the Australian population are in those two categories, has leapt ahead exponentially, but it's been growing faster than uh, um, than CPI for 20 years at least yes. on the Sunshine Coast. But um, like other regions, there's been a rush to uh, of populations to move to the regions. Yep. And because, and this has been the main driver, because the cheapness of money in terms of borrowing capacity has been accelerated away, 
you've seen people competing for purchases and you've seen um, with investment products, you've seen people being able to charge premium rents because the demand and supply is just so not, not in balance. So what has happened is that for a large group, the, the largest group of people, the top three quintiles, the top 60% of earners, have really run away with, you know, the value of housing, um, increased their investment, and that's put enormous pressure onto the availability and accessibility of housing for the lowest 40% of income workers, which have been the workers that we've needed through the pandemic to actually be settled in where they're living and able to deliver the services that we we need. So that has been a trend that's been growing on the Sunshine Coast, but it's been accelerated away. And so you're seeing in our region year-on-year gains in the um, house prices of 20-25% at least. And you've seen rents, you know, go up maybe 30%. Which, is, which has just then accelerated this issue of housing affordability. And it's, um, it's a very complex area, housing um, in Australia, that covers all kind of levels of government, but also how market systems are working and not working, that has, that has meant that we've got the housing um, crisis that we have. It's, it's interesting that the Sunshine Coast is, I think, in the top two or three areas, um, main conurbations in Australia yes. for rental stress yep. always has been, yep. but, but that's accelerated away. And it's been one of the areas in Australia where the, the, the ratio of income to the average house price has been, you know, nine or ten times, <laughs> yes. you know, an average wage to get to the, the median house price. Yeah. So, so entry into uh, being a homeowner has been a huge challenge for um, people living on the Sunshine Coast. But this, I think, is repeated in other regional areas. Yes. It's repeated in, in some of the suburbs in capital cities as well. And so um, it's a perfect storm that COVID has brought to really bring that housing crisis um, to the fore. Before we go any further, let's let's clarify, um, for again, for our listeners, that obviously... Costa Bay, you you work with those that are quite vulnerable in the community. That lower percentage there, that uh, I just just can't obviously find suitable accommodation in that space. And terms like community and affordable housing are sort of terms that are used in your space. Can you just give us an understanding of what what that is? So most people will be familiar with the term social housing. Yes. So social housing is an umbrella term for subsidised housing um, yep. of one in one particular model or one particular variety. So it's an umbrella term. Um, under that umbrella, you've got state uh, government public housing, which yes. is a very specific uh, model. Every jurisdiction in Australia has that, and it's by and far the largest kind of proportion of housing that's available by and large now, for for vulnerable Australians. So we're talking about people living with a disability or people living with a serious um, health condition or they're they're suffering a period of homelessness or they've come from homelessness or they're a family that's not able to actually engage in the private rental market for a period of time because of uh, a period of unemployment. So those vulnerable Australians are the kind of target of public housing. Yes. Um, 
and each jurisdiction has a sort of balance of public housing within the with the umbrella term of social housing but allied to public housing is the model of community housing and community housing is also for vulnerable australians but operates largely on a different model it operates on a model where it's not just a home but it's actually some um, access to wraparound support services for Ah, those vulnerable people so that they're able to actually meet their aspirations or deal with their particular need that might just be there for a brief period of time and then they're able to re-engage back in um, private rental market or, or get back into another housing solution that they may have so the public housing and the community housing work very complementary in, in yep. the jurisdictions, but yep. they're slightly different models. But again, it's about those vulnerable sure. people. Sure. Then under social housing, you've also got indigenous housing, and there's two forms of that. You've got state-owned indigenous managed yep. um, properties, and yep. then you've got indigenous corporations that own and manage their own properties. So th- those three kind of models public housing, community housing, indigenous housing, make up the social housing um, framework. Mm -hmm. Affordable housing is something quite different. It's really housing that's designed for low-income workers. Mm -hmm. So that there's various different ways it can be described, but it's targeting a subsidy of sort to those who might be on lower incomes but, but working and enabling them to sort of live close to where they need to be for work or sustaining some sort of period where they're in in that point um, where they're having lower income. So it could be single mum who's working yep. um, but not able to afford private, private rental. rental. Yeah, so there's sure. some subsidy. There's a national rental affordability scheme that's been operating in Australia for eight or nine years now where there's 37,000 of those properties right across Australia, but there are other more private-led um, initiatives that are coming, like community build to rent would be one new example, where you've got affordable housing or key worker housing yep. for those individuals who actually aren't able to sort of rent or buy into the market, but need that that slight subsidy. So we deliver both community and affordable housing. Yep. So we cover. We run from the most vulnerable, those who are, who are rough sleeping and are homeless, right through to those who are working and being able to sustain a job, but not at a level that would be able to sort of in the uh, sustain rental, a private rental, rental market, market in, in certain areas. Right. I want to come back and talk more about Coastal Bay and the great work you do, particularly in those two spaces you mentioned around community and affordable housing. But let's let's go to yourself now in terms of your entree to this space and, and and firstly what attracted you to this role and how did you find yourself here you've obviously been in other sectors and very senior roles but how did that path lead well, you to here I've, I've actually been involved in housing associations in the uk they're called or community housing here in australia for 30 years either as a director or or actually obviously now as my as, as my main job sure but as, as i said Community housing, housing associations have always been linked to other human service organisations yes. that provide support. So I've had a rich history of, of a profession with um, community development, youth work, aged care, disability, uh, always had a professional kind yep. of role linked in some way to community housing and 
um, and, afford- and now affordable housing. And the reason why I'm so excited about it is because giving somebody a home is transformational for them. <laughs> You know, uh, I yeah. mean, it's the most basic kind of need yeah. that yeah. everybody has, that somewhere to stay, to call your own, to be part of a neighbourhood, to be included. And, yeah. it's, and, and it's not just bricks and mortar. It's about the whole individual, Correct. about oh. what they, what, what, how they see themselves. Impression of self. Yeah. yeah, and um, who they are, what they are. And not just the main tenants, but often the children and the extended family. So housing is one of those things in Australia that is totally transformational. And one of mm. the things that motivates me, and I know motivates my staff, yeah. is to see the individual journeys and the lives that are touched by yeah. the work that we do. And somebody who's come from some form of crisis or real uh, sense of need, they gain stability, they gain um, confidence, mm, mm. they're able to fix things for themselves, often yeah. with support, and they're able to actually carry on with their lives. And yeah. we always kind of publish the human stories behind the kind of, you know, bricks and mortar, as it were, to kind of highlight what it is that community and affordable housing does and public housing does in terms of being able to transform the lives of individuals and families and it's wonderful to see it's great and and i'd encourage everyone to look at those stories on your website because they are just fantastic stories and really well done Um, but also it really enforces the the point that you're not really a housing company you're actually working with people and transforming their lives that's Um, right um, and, and it's, you know, I've got a, a short uh, statement here from the UN that says everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate to the health and well-being of himself and his family, including food, clothing, housing and medical care and necessary social services and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age and, and or the lack of livelihood and circumstances beyond their control. Now, that's from the Human Rights um, a charter for adequate housing. So it seems to fit perfectly into what Costa Bay does. Is that, that your view? It is. And and obviously social housing, that umbrella, is one of the ways in which Australia actually meets and fulfils that obligation under the UN Convention around yeah. human rights so that the most vulnerable, I think most Australians accept that the most vulnerable, those living with a disability or a health issue that can't actually engage in the market, need that housing in order to find a place for them to live. But it, it's it's not just for them. I think it's a neighbourhood and a community thing that yeah. actually, yeah. that you know, they haven't, the ability and the possibility to engage in their neighbourhood, be a good neighbour, be be involved in their community. So it's it's not just our work isn't just transformational. We're trying to transform lives or assist people to transform their lives. I think it is about social inclusion. And so Australia, like other countries, has a history where some of those vulnerable groups were locked away in institutional congregate settings. You know, yeah. that's no longer considered. Yeah. you know, an adequate response uh, to meeting the, the, the people's rights. So that's where uh, social housing really comes to the fore. But what you have to remember is that in Australia, only 4 or 5% of all dwellings are under that social housing banner. So in order for that right to be fulfilled, we, like other 
Western liberal democracies are reliant on the market. Is right. the market actually operating in such a way that every Australian has the ability to have a sol- housing solution that, that meets their income level or meets their needs or meets their requirements? And one of the, and I go back to this housing crisis, one of the things that we're starting to realise through COVID is there's something wrong with our market-based system that yeah. it's not actually working to meet the needs of the whole of the Australian population. And this is sometimes easy to see when you compare it with some of the other essential public goods or public services that Australia expects. Can you imagine if 95% of our health provision was in private market and only 5% sure. was in you know, in um, state-controlled or community-controlled, oh. and then something went wrong with yeah. the market for 95% of health conditions, there would be an outrage in Australia oh. to say, we can't yeah. get the health, we can't get the health, we can't afford the health services, something's gone wrong with the market. Or, if you look to education, Same, yeah. you know, let, let's, let's imagine that 95% of education was delivered by private, private schools. schools. Yeah. And something went wrong with that system, so that the majority couldn't afford that, or a good proportion sure. of the pop of of children couldn't access education. Then there would be an outrage. I think it's interesting in Australia that we've kind of forgotten that housing is the most basic need. Mm. And actually, if our market system isn't working for ninety five percent of the housing solutions, are market based solutions in Australia, then we've got a demand something of our politicians in order to get the market settings and the policy policy settings right in order that it actually fulfills that need and that's the big dilemma that we've got at the moment that so much of the control of what's happening around housing is being led by the market and the market is failing to meet the needs of of um, a great proportion of the population Let's take a short break now to hear from our podcast partner, Coast to Bay Housing Group. Coast to Bay Housing Group is an award-winning group of entities that incorporates the largest provider of community and affordable housing, delivering services from just north of Brisbane through to Gympie in Queensland. The group of companies encompasses a diverse range of business activities from development and construction of new homes, property management, real estate sales, community development and tenancy engagement programs. It delivers government services in a form of community housing aimed at providing a home for the most vulnerable Australians as well as property management for social outcomes for private landlords and investors under affordable housing schemes for key workers. For more information about Coast Bay and the great work they do on the Sunshine Coast here in Queensland, check out their website. Welcome back. Today I'm talking with Andrew Alvin, CEO of Coast to Bay Housing Group. Let's just say now we've got both state government, federal government ministers that are responsible for housing um, here with us today. How would you convince them to deal with this crisis? And sure, we can meet our obligations, firstly, and but more importantly, we have that basic human need for you know a growing proportion of our population. Well. I think what's interesting, if you, look at, if you look at an international comparison, 
if you look at the United States of America, that's got a far more predominant market-based system for its housing than we do in Australia. Yep. They wouldn't recognise 5% of dwellings, you know, being in a social housing system. Their crisis around housing is worse than ours. You know, if you look at the proportion of rough sleeping and yep. homelessness and poverty and all of the issues that come, I would say having such a reliance on an uh, on a market system to try and think you can um, get your way out of this through letting the market rip. You only got to look to America, America. to say that is not, not the solution. Work. Correct. If you looked at Western liberal democracies in um, Europe, they've got far more sophisticated ways in which governments intervene in the market, mm-hmm. but also actually create the policy frameworks for more affordable housing, not necessarily social housing, but more affordable housing to be available. So that if you look to the City of London, for example, all new approvals in the City of London now must have a 50% requirement for affordable housing, which is obviously relative to... The population. the, The population, but also the income levels. They've achieved that because they've had 40 years of policy settings that's led to that point. You know, you look at other European countries that have got systems in place uh, and models in place to actually provide a greater access to home ownership that we just don't have in Australia. Mm. These interventions to make the market work more perfectly Mm -hmm. for different income groups are are what we need and we haven't got the settings right in Australia in order for that to be the case. The other thing that Australia has is that it has this dual picture of what housing is. Yes, it is something for a basic need for people to to have a dwelling, to have shelter, for, for to have a home. But it's also an investment product for so many. Correct. Um, and that is kind of stilted the way in which our housing market mm. works to the extent that the top 60% of, of earners have got a disproportionate investment into the market-based system um, and 40% have less or aren't even able to, to, to get into place. But there are some, there is some hope in Australia. Um, because I think there are some models that have come from Europe that are starting to emerge in Australia that will be far more beneficial. So let me just take an example of that. Um, Everybody, including myself, should be convinced that home ownership is a good thing because it provides somebody a stake, somebody's got an asset, somebody in latter years has got something that they can rely on um, to meet their own housing needs. What we do in Australia is that we give people grants, a home, first homeowner grant, or in COVID, they gave them an extra grant. Um, all the evidence shows through economic modelling is all that does is add to the price of the home. Goes up. Yeah? <laughs> Whereas in Europe, they've said, well, actually, what we need to be doing to help people who aren't able to quite get into the housing market is to have shared equity products where they actually perhaps only own two-thirds of a house. And... Um, a government entity or a community housing provider will own the other quarter. And then as the equity builds up over five years or 10 years, then they can move to a situation where they've got 100% equity in their next home. Now, Victoria's 
had a pilot scheme for that and has rolled that is starting to roll that model out. But they've had it for forty years in the UK mm. um, and and in other European countries. They've had it for much longer. That's helped people get into home right. ownership in a much more effective way yep. than just giving them a grant from yeah. from a state government or a federal government that only really goes into the the pockets of the developers as extra as extra profit. So that's a good example, I think, where um, we have a market-based system, but we open it up in terms of accessibility for more and more groups rather than less and less groups, which is what we have at the moment. Then that would make the social housing system and the affordable housing system be far more efficient because we wouldn't have this pressure on us from groups um, coming into that, falling into those... Uh, needs for subsidised housing yep. there would be a positive progression of people through to different housing solutions there ought to be institutional investment into affordable housing and community housing yeah. we ought to have yeah. the federal um, systems and processes for that to actually work so housing is a essential infrastructure when it's for vulnerable people sure. as our population grows why aren't we utilizing our super funds or why aren't we utilizing yeah. you know government investment to get a return on investment sure. in order to actually build the stock rather than it just be a hundred percent grant funded which is the only system we've really got for new housing into the social housing system yep. at the moment so Tremendous ideas. We need to send this podcast to those ministers. I think there's some fantastic ideas there. Well, there's another thing that housing's become very political in Australia. So the parties of the left say that actually what we what we need to do is return back to that golden era, or I've heard some say that golden era of where the state governments did so much of the development activity and so much of the you know the public housing system was there as a as a as an alternative housing solution for ordinary working people to go back to the 1950s or the 1960s well there's good news and bad news is we can't go back to the 1960s you know (laughs) that's um that's the bad news but it's also the good news because we need to think more um progressively about what we what we can do i don't think governments by and large make good landlords so there's there's a different model um those from the right say actually we've got an imperfect market system and governments just need to get out of the way but that isn't the answer too because that's only going to accelerate what we've got at the moment markets operate by segmenting and diversifying and offering product to a particular group and they're all fighting for the market share over the group that can afford a house nobody's providing the market isn't providing for different kind of models and so it isn't that we need less intervention we need more and more sensible intervention by governments but uh, you know government intervention for parties of the right is a difficulty for them so it's highly politicized in australia and that's one of the reasons why we can't really move forward with addressing the elephant in the room which is if 95 percent are engaging in the market for a housing solution what is it that the market isn't delivering and how do we get right. there 
for that to be a better solution for Australia. But you, uh, I want to talk about some of your initiatives now as well. That, that's the ideas, that's what we're talking to politicians and decision makers about. But you guys on the ground are actually doing that in practice. And one of those is, I mentioned earlier, now we, we work with not-for-profits and I call them full-purpose organisations, but you've set up a full-purpose real estate agent. So tell us a bit about that initiative as well. Well, it's a growing initiative across Australia. There are a number in capital cities now, but we were the first in Queensland, which is to operate full, high-quality real estate services, but with an, um, offering an ethical choice to the market. So we can sell houses, we can manage properties yeah. outside of the social housing system, but utilise the, the income that we get from that, the turnover, a proportion of the turnover and all of the profit in order to feed back into Brilliant. more community and affordable housing. And last year, fourth year of trading, that was 220000 that we were able to actually contribute back just because we operated a social enterprise. And so we're not the only ones doing this, but we're really proud about how that's Fantastic. actually worked. And... We've also taken on, through head leasing arrangements, other properties outside of the social housing system to provide accommodation through that real estate agency for particular groups that just fall outside of the eligibility for social housing. So women, older women who've had a difficult set of circumstances and arrived at a situation where they've got very little capital themselves, um, can't afford the private rental market, where do they... Where do they go? And so we're operating a, a, a way in which they can share a rental together. We call it Better Together Housing. Mm-hmm. So we, we help them find a match in the community so that they can stay in their community of choice, near their grandchildren or whatever it might be. Um, and again, we do that through very innovative models linked to purpose sure. real estate. So we... We've, we've recently been nominated for Excellence Awards. We're I very see. proud of yeah, it. Yeah. It's a natural extension for us about we're not just in this very specialised area of housing for vulnerable people. We're trying to actually um, get different models that can reach out to, to people in different circumstances to find a housing solution. And say to those who are property investors, and I'm one, it says we need more property investors, not less. We just need it targeted to the right groups. (laughs) Um, But saying to them, um, let us manage your property, and then you're at least giving something back to the the community. Now, let's just broadly talk about your approach to leadership at Costa Bay. Well, leadership is really about presenting an appealing vision of the future and where the organisation is going to and where it needs to go to and then translating that into practical day-to-day steps that people can understand in order to come with you. And I think you can only get there if you've got a relationship of trust with the people that you work with. Um, It's very difficult to provide leadership if there isn't that confidence and trust um, across the the organisation. Yes. Um, And working with boards is part of that as well in terms of being able to have that confidence about that um, appealing picture of the future and the change that's needed to get to that future has the confidence of the people that you're working with Yes. in order to, to bring them with you. 
can't bring everybody with you, yep. but if you can get the majority to come with you um, and to understand um, yep. that that's, that's the correct journey and destination, that's really what leadership is. But it's not a science. It's, it's an art form. And I think, I know you asked this question, but it, it's a gift that you've got to nurture I think over over a n- number of years to actually make sure that you can actually get the balance between destabilizing an organization on the one hand or getting an organization to move and to shift and to move forward with confidence on the other it's not an easy thing to 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 get right many of many of my guests would agree um in terms of their views and perspective has it changed in your career, your view on leadership, you seem very clear on on leadership and it, and and its importance to the organisation and the the method that you would. Look, from my take. experience, I think you've got to have a few failures about being <coughs> a leader before you can really gain the the experience <laughs> and the gravitas. The school uh, of hard knocks, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in order to in order to actually get there. So it for me, it's changed because. When I first became a CEO, I had wonderful ideas that all had to be delivered in five minutes because I wanted to demonstrate that I was up to the job, which was more of a need for me than it was necessarily for an organisation. So patience uh, becomes pa- with patience, yeah. um, and and building building from the bottom up in terms of building those foundations in order to be able to to lead. And I look back now and think some of the horrendous mistakes that. I made, which I thought were the right decisions at the time. At the time. Yeah, yeah. That's why I say it's a gift that's got to be nurtured rather than um, something that you can potentially learn from, from textbooks. The, the other thing is that I think you need to understand where particularly your frontline workers uh, yeah. are coming from and ca- capture their imagination in a way that, that's understandable them so one of the things in housing that I often do um, at our team meetings is to get people to relate the experience of what it's like to sit opposite a family that's come through trauma or through a really difficult Mm. patch to offer them a home what that's actually like Mm. because that's that's the best bit of the job you're giving somebody a place to live and asking them to describe what that's like and you know to tell the story of the tears and the joy and uh, whatever it might be Um, because for us the future is about how do we actually do more of that and support not you know those people in that not just in that moment of crisis but from that point onwards you know that's that it's got to be meaningful for frontline staff that are doing that job rather than a rather than a theoretical vision yep. of, of something that doesn't relate to the work that they're, that they're doing. Have you had any mentors or those that have supported you in this journey in terms of your leadership role and, and, and how they influenced you? I've, not had, I've never had a formal mentor, but I think in my career I've met people who have been inspirational and learned a lot from them. Yep. And I also think one of the things about leadership is you're not the expert. Um, and so it's a kind of reverse thing that you almost need the inspiration to come from those that you work with. 
um, and to provide enough thinking time and working time together for for their um, input to be coming in to to help and assist your work but also to reciprocate for them in order to actually help and assist in you know in their executive role or their manager role so i am a very much um a believer in uh, as one person i used to work with used to say we need a tournament of the minds about people coming (laughs) together in order to think things through um with enough time and space to be able to do that in order to to fashion the the vision for the future and and one of the examples that i've experienced with with you and your organization is the commitment that you the board and the senior execs give to giving that space to your your staff you know yes. every year you you allow obviously significant time and resources for the team to come together um, through facilitated conversations about their roles, their responsibility, the future direction, and it's a very engaging opportunity for yeah. them. So uh, I think it's vital because yeah. um, people are invested where they are in our organisation. I know they are in, in many other organisations in our sector and the human service sector. They're invested, their career, their energies are all invested in this. So they need to have space and opportunity yeah. to say, if, even if they even if they feel their contribution is at the margins, it's still that opportunity for them to, yeah. to contribute. And we've had some peaches come out, haven't we, in terms of, you know, the broad range of demographics that happen in in your workforce you got some very young staff members some very senior mature staff members and and some of the feedback we get from those conversations is just you know brilliant isn't it ideas and suggestions now um i'm really enjoying our conversation andrew but just finally we need to need to finish up our clients are really broad brush at cba and uh Aged care, education, disability, health, housing, community service, really broad brush. And they're all striving for this positive change for individuals they support, in your case, housing. So what are some of the key messages you'd give to, you know, colleagues in, in, in this space, but other space about leading not-for-profits, particularly when, you know, you're trying to get this positive change in, in terms of, in your case, you know, securing safe, affordable housing for very vulnerable individuals? One of, the, one of the phrases I use quite regularly with staff at all levels is just stand back a moment and think differently. Try to think differently about what you're doing. So most of those sectors that you talked about, we all have our regulatory systems. We yeah. all have our quality systems. Yep. We all have our tick boxes that we've, we've got to work to. Yeah? Yep. Yep. But when they're not delivering for an individual um, set of circumstances um, then you've got to have the ability as a professional to stand outside of those frameworks and say how can I think differently about this Um, and you know what can we do as an organization to facilitate that and to make that happen And and sometimes it's just the very practical examples that really make that work. Sure. So I'll, I'll give you one example. So we had a single mum 
operating a very effective tenancy, but obviously on a very, very low income. Mm -hmm. And all of those life circumstances come along and a disaster happens. So the washing machine breaks down. And so instead of turning for help and support, because she was a resilient person, Mm -hmm. she said, well, what I'll need to do is I'll need to do hand washing in the bath each night in order to get the school uniforms and everything done. And, of course, rather than replace the washing machine. And what happened was the water bills went up. She couldn't pay the water bills. The tenancy became vulnerable because of that. It led to issues with the body corporate. I won't really go into all of this, you know. And the tenancy manager had the foresight to sort of say, well, we've, we've just got to step outside of our systems to help this woman get a washing machine yeah. and to resolve the issue. You know, Was there a policy for that? Was there a procedure for that? No, there wasn't, but it was somebody that was thinking differently. Yeah? And what happened was that tenancy was saved. The woman's life was, was transformed because the worry went away. Sure. Um, that's a practical example Fantastic. about where yeah. somebody's yeah, got yeah. to think differently because they're trying to actually meet that individual need that doesn't fit the box. So it doesn't matter if you're in aged care, education or disability or health. Yep. You've got to have frontline staff that feel empowered enough to be able to say, I have to find the, the solution yep. for something like that that makes, that makes the difference. It wasn't that we were doing anything that was prohibited it was just that that person had to think differently how do we get organizations particularly when they're not for profits how do we get people to think differently in that way because we have to show a competitive advantage against the for-profits or against the bureaucracies that that position our sector to be the sector that actually can fulfill needs in a way that most of other of those models can't so i think think try to think differently at all levels at an organization and to pursue the innovations and pursue the things that actually get to the heart of what you're trying to do and to deliver your mission Um, and you can't go too far wrong if you if you get that brilliant embedded in the culture thank you for your time thanks again Andrew it's been a pleasure and um, I hope all of those that are listening it resonated with their sector or whatever they're doing agreed I'm sure it did thanks Andrew bye for now thank you and thanks to our podcast partner Coaster Bay Housing Group thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator our marketing and communication consultants for producing this podcast and thank you for tuning in today join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd and this is Seen and Heard.